1: Hi, this is Steve. You know, with some filmmakers, the problem isn't deciding whether or not to talk about their work. The problem is deciding which of their great movies we want to talk about first. The Cohn brothers have explored just about every genre of filmmaking. They've done comedies and dramas, period pieces, thrillers, westerns. They've directed action sequences and musical numbers. They've scared us, thrilled us, and made us look at the world through a lens that is uniquely their own. In fact, Despite the way they've jumped from genre to genre, every one of their films is one thing above everything else. It's a Coen Brothers movie. So, which one would you pick to start with? The fast pace and wit of Raising Arizona, the dark power of Fargo, a thriller like Miller's Crossing, or a cult classic like Lebowski? Honestly, John and I could spend an hour discussing just about any one of those, and we probably will. But in the end, we decided to start with the Academy Award-winning... No Country for Old Men. This is the Coen brothers at the top of their game with a movie that is as spare and powerful as it is haunting. No Country for Old Men stars Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, and Javier Bardem as one of the most terrifying villains in film history. You can stream this one on Hulu, rent it on iTunes, or check out the Blu-ray for the best picture and sound. So, that's No Country for Old Men, coming this Friday to the
2: Cinephiles. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss?
3: Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes.
2: For what? Just call it.
3: Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here.
2: You need to call it. I can't call it for you. it wouldn't be fair.
3: I didn't put nothing up.
2: Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. <laughs>
1: welcome once again to the cinephiles where each week we enter the world of a great film we explore its themes its history the filmmaking and the influence it has on us today my name is steve morris i am a filmmaker and directing instructor in los angeles california
4: hello everyone again i am john roca i am a voiceover artist host of numerous shows here in los angeles and i don't know an actor i guess you are an actor thank you have I you, talk
1: about things have you, have you been paid to act i have been paid to act have, do you have, have you gotten a sag card i've gotten a sag card before yes so you are an actor okay fine i'm an yeah. actor and, so be it and by the way i yeah. think a good actor oh well thank yeah. you that's very kind um, of you. yeah i've thought but from the beginning <laughs> um so uh, <laughs> now that we've kissed no, each other's asses, and what, you're a fantastic what? director, and I was you're, like, a wait a you're
4: a great film anal- lover anal- of film. You're a great analyzer of film. I didn't
1: want my ass to remain <laughs> unkissed. <laughs> I apologize. Um, so today, you know, as we we, we go through the, the show, one of the yeah. great things is that is that we get to at the beginning now we get to talk about. A new director, you know, it's mm-hmm. like when are we going to knock off each of the great directors? And now we've come to not one great director, but two great directors. Let's just say filmmakers, yeah, because these guys produce, write, direct, and don't tell anyone, but they edit their own films. Wow, uh, and we're talking, of course, about the Cone Brothers. Yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for so many reasons. Is that there's so, and I think there's so many of us. Would you just hear? You know, with some movies you see like, oh, what's this movie going to be about? Right. You know, like, oh, that looks like something I want to see.
4: And with this, with them, it's, oh, there's another Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 going to be an experience when we're. In. I mean, they have the occasional outliers like intolerable cruelty uh, that are not necessarily, or even lady killers are not necessarily their their type of film. But like, but then, but when you hear Coen Brothers, you want to jump all in and see yeah. what they can do with it. So normally, I ask, when how
1: did you first come to the film? Yeah, uh, but first, well, maybe we should say the film we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, although it is really on the title of the podcast, so <laughs> most of you probably already know the movie we're going to talk about. I, this is a our most recent film. Yeah, No Country for Old Men. It's 2000- more
4: recent than. Sky but then uh Casino Royale. Yeah, Casino wow. Royale's two thousand six. Oh yeah. This is two thousand seven. So we've been breaking our rule here and people no, have been because commenting on it. We're not gonna well what's we have to define our rule. Oh yeah. Well we our... used to say before the year two or at least I used to say before the year two thousand, but
1: yeah, and I I I've kind of altered that to, yes. uh, to ten years ago. Yeah, it's fine. Because it's gonna advance as we advance and since although Don't tell me when we're recording this in two thousand six. It will be two thousand sixteen. It will be released in two thousand seventeen. Right, and therefore that's ten years uh, to no country qualifies. And really, by the way, for all of you listening, the real rule is: this is a movie that we want to do. Yeah. And and yes, we are going to get back into silent films, and yes, we are going to do more foreign films. We promise you, definitely. But but for right now, it's no country for old men. Yeah. And normally, I'd ask you how you first came to the film, but I want to ask you how did you first come to the Coen Brothers?
4: Um, I would. Raising Arizona was my first experience with them. I skipped Blood Simple for whatever reason, and there was just something about Raising Arizona that I that I just loved the trailer and that song. It's all of that was just great. So I I remember seeing it by myself uh, at uh, AMC theaters in Dale City. Uh, Some like I used to do when I would have these breaks uh, when I worked at a bookstore there or a clothing store there. I would go and take these breaks two-hour breaks and go see a movie and then come back and finish my shift. Uh, So I went to see that there and I just fell in love with them. And then Miller's Crossing really cemented my love for uh, the Coen brothers completely. That's still one of my favorite top 10 films ever made. Miller's Crossing is so eminently watchable and the dialogue is amazing. And this film, a lot of people call it their masterpiece. And I don't think you can argue I don't think you can argue.
1: I I, I can't argue. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure if I agree, but I can't argue. Yeah, like the the but you, are, you can't argue the sentiment. No, right? of course not. Right. Um, I have to think. Like, <clears throat> and it well, might be. It might very well be. Well, yeah. The um, I'm exactly the same. Didn't see Blood Simple, which isn't surprising. It wasn't. an yeah. indie film. Didn't get a wide release. Right. Um, I still haven't seen it. Did you? Oh yeah. Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, I should see it. It's good. Okay, yeah. I'll see. It's it. It, it's like, you, you, in a way, I put Blood Simple. Is to the Coen Brothers as Reservoir Dogs is to Quentin Tarantino. Oh, really? All mean, right, maybe not quite as good a movie, as because mm-hmm. I think Reservoir Dogs is an amazing movie. but, yes. but what's interesting about it is a low budget movie. Yeah. but you can see that's the Coen Brothers. It's okay, really clear. Okay. that it's made by them. Yeah, you sold it. It's really I'll watch good. It. Um, yeah, I saw Raising Arizona in the theater, and it immediately became in the rotation of we're going to rent this on VHS. Yes, I remember. I think I gave it to. One, maybe it was, I gave it to Steve Jones okay. for his birthday one year when when buying a VHS tape was really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was
4: expensive. $120. I don't think it was yeah. that,
1: but I think it was like $40, which <laughs> for a 19-year-old or 20-year-old, that yeah. was a lot of money. Yeah, um, And, uh, yeah, we quoted it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just like, here's a completely new way of making films. Yeah. You know, and it was geeky and fun and thrilling and then you get again Miller's Crossing amazing yeah. movie and and movie after movie and uh, do I love every single Cohen brothers movie no, no but every single movie I'm excited to see yeah you know and, I, I, i've been let down by them but go ahead sure and, and some of them are off the charts like for instance so Fargo comes out I thought yeah. Fargo is an amazing movie uh-huh very good movie and then uh Lebowski comes out yeah and I saw Lebowski in the theater and I went that's okay
4: Oh, oh, really?
1: Yeah, I don't know why. It doesn't to you, attach to you like other people. Oh, Let me oh, finish oh, the story. I apologize. Is that I saw it in the... Because th- mm-hmm. I loved Fargo. Yeah. And Lebowski's not Fargo. It's yeah, absolutely very not. different. And then doing the DVD job, the DVD of Lebowski oh, came yeah, in. Yeah. And there's some movies that I had in that job where I watched them over and over and over again. And I had liked them in the theater. Mm-hmm. And they got worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Two that pop into mind are The Rock... Oh yes And
4: Armageddon That's not possible <laughs> Shut your lies Because at some point I'm going to convince you That we're going to do Armageddon on this podcast I If I have to get Michael Bay on here We will get We will be covering Armageddon at some point I don't want Michael Bay In this podcast <laughs> I He's love Armageddon He's not supposed to be A so nice much. person yeah, um, The rock I can I've never understood The love for the rock I get the idea Of the the comments and the quotes are funny, but that film just doesn't do it for me. Well, man. in the theater, I, li- I yeah. liked it a lot. Sure. Great. Experience and then the I theater. saw it the second time, maybe not so much. Or the third, yeah. by, by the
1: time I'd watched it six times, I hated that movie. Yeah. Um, Lebowski every time I watched it got better and better and after watching it 10 or 15 times I'm
4: like this is one of my favorite movies of all time yeah Lebowski's great man and it it does grow on you it does like Anchorman like these kinds of films if you watch them over and over again they just kind of grow on you and Lebowski's just such a great masterpiece and I remember seeing it in Germany I, in, in, really? in Austria, I went to see visit this girl I'd met on a chat room, and we'd never seen each other, and I flew out to Austria for 10 days to see her, and having never seen her, and we like dated for 10 days. It was amazing, and one of the things, her favorite film at the time was Lebowski, so we went to see it in this like alley in Austria with these fold-out chairs and wow. this screen that they pulled down and wow. beer, and just like two two pints of beer each of us just watching and laughing the whole the whole time and i and that's where my uh, enjoyment of the film started to grow just like you i saw it the first time and thought oh it's funny but i didn't understand the love people had for it and then when you watch it over and over again
1: yeah it, it well and this is the thing about the coen brothers so yes. let's talk a little bit about them cuz they're unique filmmakers yeah um, they grew up in minnesota which is where uh, fargo is is uh Near. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Where Fargo t- yeah, where Fargo <laughs> takes place. My brain immediately went to but well, Fargo's in North Dakota. Yeah, right. And then but Minnesota and then I got really confused. Oh yeah. Um so so uh and they like Steven Spielberg like other filmmakers we talked about. They got that video camera when they yeah. were kids and started making their versions of movies they loved. They just re filmed movies. Yeah. Uh I think uh Joel went to NYU and studied filmmaking. Uh Ethan went to Princeton where he studied philosophy i think wow. okay i think i don't have my notes in front of me but right. but uh, and then they come back together and, and the first place they start working is they start working for Sam Raimi and they're the editors on Evil Dead Oh wow yeah and they invented on Evil Dead Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers invented one of my favorite low-budgeting filmmaking techniques which is called the shaky cam yeah and so the shaky so, so to do like really fast dolly shots or steady cam shots costs money yeah if you don't have money this is a thing you can do which is, you t- and I've done it, which is you take a camera mm-hmm. and you strap it to a two-by-four that's maybe eight feet long. And then you have one guy on either side of the two-by-four and they can run with the two-by-four with the camera in the middle. <laughs> and what happens is is because if you have one person running with a camera, it's bouncy. Yes. Really, really bouncy. But if you have two people, they tend to even each other out. So it's mm-hmm. not a steady cam. They call it a shaky cam. Right. And the thing you can do with it that you can't do with a steady cam is you can go over and under things because you have two guys eight oh, feet apart. Right. So they can run towards a car or a person and then go over that person. Right. And then they can have someone jump over the piece of wood. Right. And you could do shots that you'd never ever seen before. And if you look at Evil Dead and you look at Blood yeah. Simple too, which is their first film, is you see the shaky cam. All right. Which yeah. is a great low-budget filmmaking technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after Blood Simple, which is a hit at Sundance, early, early Sundance, yeah. they go on to make Raising Arizona, which is this great comedy, mm-hmm. and you start to see these elements of the Cone Brothers style, yeah. which is dialogue, which is they don't like naturalistic dialogue. Mm-hmm. They like Cone Brothers dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's a heightened dialogue, and uh, the way they move the camera and their exploration and tilting of genre. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a genre that's recognizable, but they're doing it in their Cone Brothers y yeah. way. Yeah. And so it's always fun to see whether it's, Big Lebowski, which is like, it's actually a film noir detective story. Yes, it is. But tilted
4: Mm -hmm. in a Coen Brothers version. Because he's one of the most uh, unwilling uh, protagonists in any film that you'll ever find. Oh, yeah. One of the most like, uh, he could care less about what he's doing, but he's dragged into this situation and then he, you follow along with him, you know, with all his foibles. It's fantastic.
1: Yeah. And, and interestingly hmm. enough, the way they were always credited in the past was that Joel was credited as the director. Right. Ethan was credited as the producer. And uh, it's the, a
4: DGA thing, I
1: think. Right. It's the reason of it was the two guilds, the producers' guild and the directors' guild, particularly the directors' guild, said, you can't dilute this title. Like in West Side Story, Jerome Robbins and um, Robert Wise shared Mm -hmm. the title. Directors Guild said, no, that's not cool. And so they made a rule. Only one person directs the film. And of course, they're both directing the film. Yeah. But they wouldn't let them do it until recently. And recently about... I don't know which is the first one. No Country for Old Men is listed as produced, written, and directed by both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And they continue to go through genres until we get to No Country for Old Men, which I think is a departure for them. Yeah? Um, Interesting. Okay. Well, it's not... It's funny. Craft-wise, all the craftsmanship, totally cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dialogue-wise,
4: tone-wise, it's extremely restrained Mm -hmm. for them. Yes. There is... The humor is not found in the quirky... No, uh, there's no quirky characters like in Miller's Crossing. You have Steve Buscemi's character. Obviously, in Raising Arizona, you have a number of quirky characters right. throughout the whole thing, even though it's very serious things. Uh, you know, Blood Simple has a noir vibe to it. So some of that bleeds over, I think, in No Country. And the Raising Arizona has that Western vibe to it. So you feel that in a little bit in No Country. So I think there's there's elements of the stuff they've done before. But you're right, Steve. It's one of the most restrained films uh, because of the characterizations that these three actors do with the main parts in the film they are not talkers no they, they are not over i mean they, they talk but they're not overt in their sentimentality or overt in their action by words you know what i'm saying absolutely and and we should
1: say no country for old men is based on the novel by
4: cormac mccarthy
1: yes um which i just read oh, wow. uh, recently and I, it's funny i'd actually bought it on audible a week and a half before you suggested doing this movie i'm like oh, nice. perfect i'm just about to read it uh and what what uh, amazed me about the book is the movie is so faithful to the book yeah it is it, to the point where they describe their writing process as one of them sat at the keyboard and the other one had the book in their hand and read out of the book and the other person typed the dialogue in the movie. Wow. It, it really the di- a lot of the dialogue is exactly Right out of the book. That's great. Which kind of is why I think it's a departure. Yeah. You know, because you don't have that Cone Mm Brothers-y, sparkly, heightened, fast-paced dialogue.
4: Yeah. You know? How you, do you remember how you first came to the film? Yeah, uh, I think I just saw saw it in the theaters. I'm sure I went with some some of our friends because it's 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 early enough that we were all friends by this time. And um, and I remember probably I probably saw it with uh, Shannon and Ian and Michael and a bunch of other people. Like we probably all went together and saw it and just blown away by it. And, and it's a film that you have to watch over and over and over again. It's a film that still echoes. In my mind, especially as I become an older man, you know, you hear the stuff that Tommy Lee Jones says, a lot of his dialogue. The yeah. fact that Bardem is the lead villain as a Latino actor, as a Latino actor, watching a Latino actor, there's a certain kind of pride in that. Uh, and I love, um, I love seeing, like, I think this is the birth of Josh Brolin Absolutely. all over again. Obviously, he'd been in Goonies and a number sure. of other stuff, but this is the birth of Josh Brolin as a potential leading man and in these kinds of roles, you know, because he's really a character actor in a leading man's body. And so it's like these kinds of things that are work. These are the kinds of roles that he's built to do you know yeah and he's yeah, yeah i mean we'll, we'll get into <clears throat> we'll get into the cast in a second i just remember uh-huh. being blown away just so blown away by the film
1: yeah for me i was up in the bay area for the holidays mm-hmm. and the holidays for karen and i is always Stressful because <laughs> all of our it's majority all of, our, of people, yeah, stressful. all of our families up there. And so, we, we would do, particularly this was 2006, we would do the relative dance. So, one night we're spending oh, yeah. the night here, and one night we're spending the night here, and then we have to drive over here and we have to dinner with this person. Of course, this person will be really upset if you don't see them. And we're doing the runaround, right? Which was exhausting. And uh, we suddenly went, Oh we got three hours between when we have to be where we're leaving now Mm -hmm. and when we got to meet this other relative and we went, let's go see a movie. And we saw that it was playing in Emeryville Yeah. and I might've seen a trailer. I don't really know. Like I really didn't know what the movie was about. I didn't know anything about it because it was just, it was just a way to escape into a movie theater for a few hours. And we walk in and I knew it was a Coen brothers movie. So I had the expectation of Fargo and Lebowski Mm -hmm. and you sit down and the movie is so stark, yeah, and so quiet and paced so differently and i remember I remember having this moment where i 'm twenty five minutes into the movie, completely wrapped mm-hmm. and then my you know filmmaker brain clicks in and goes, "Has there been any score?" and I suddenly went there 's been no music, yeah, yet. and that i I cannot begin to express how amazing the lack of music is in this film." Mm-hmm. Because I, I think, and I looked it up. There's 16 minutes of mu- music in the film, yeah. Of which maybe seven of them are in the credits. Wow! Mm. You know, so, wow. so it's really nine minutes of mu- music, and the music is barely. It's like drones. Mm-hmm. It is there's there's it's just a quiet, real sound design film. Yeah. And, and if you're a filmmaker, you know. That is really, really fucking hard. <laughs> because music is what you depend upon. Music yeah. lifts your movie up. Music mm-hmm. gives you the emotion. It communicates directly to the audience the emotion you want them to feel in the, feel in the scene. Yeah. And if you watch a rough cut, which you frequently do with no music, you're like, oh, this is boring. <laughs> so the level of filmmaking chops mm. and guts to go, nope. And apparently, it was Joel's. Joel, this is what Joel really wanted. And Ethan resisted it. Wow. uh, And said, no, no, let's do it without music. And it's really scary. Like, will it sustain without music? And of course, it does.
4: Yeah. Amazingly. Well, I think that speaks to their cinematography, it speaks to the scenes that they've written. Obviously, Cormac McCarthy wrote originally in the novel. And the power of these actors to bring these scenes to life that you don't need music You know, I told you the other day I just finished watching uh, uh, The Lost Weekend, which is the Ray a Very very hard film to get through about the perils of alcoholism and where it can lead you and And the score is so overt in certain moments in that movie and it really struck me in in juxtap when you juxtapose no country there is hardly any mu- music mm-hmm. as you just said nine minutes total probably in the actual movie as opposed to the credits and you're still enraptured and engaged in what's happening because of the character study that's happening with these these three actors like everyone else obviously is fantastic in the movie but There's it's no bad actors it is, you know, in the movie. no there isn't yeah. and, but it's Tommy Lee Jones it's Josh Brolin it's it's a uh, uh, Javier Bardem these are the people you're following through the situations and. They, I think it's so smart the way they do this because they let you feel like you're in the environment. Yep. At no point do you feel like you're being pulled out of the movie and watching as an observer. They immediately put you next to Chigurh, next to Javier Bardem, next to Josh Brolin, riding along with Tommy Lee Jones. You're just with them the whole time and you're on their journey and it's very much a man's movie and i i think women can watch it and, and appreciate it and adore it no whenever. unfortunately women are not allowed to watch it
1: <laughs> but i just it mean... was really sad
4: when i went to see it karen was forced to wait in the lobby <laughs> but i really wanted to see the movie yeah, yeah well i just i just mean that like i'm sure women can appreciate it but i mean like this is a woman that this is a film that like it's about men and the stuff sure. that they confront and the loss of power and the inevitability of death and uh, the sneaky ways and the amoral and moral conflicts that always occur within most men and this is just to me it's just such a great exploration of that and it's eminently rewatchable it's something on the lines of Shawshank Redemption it's one of these films about men that you can watch over and over and over again on TNT or on TBS and it never loses its power it never loses its effect on you
1: yeah it it, it sucks you in and it's funny yeah. I was thinking about it in a weird way in relationship to The Shining Mm. Uh, and the reason is, is that I remember when we talked about The Shining. Yeah. that that's a movie that's extremely slow paced. Yeah, and yet once you're in, you're in, mm-hmm. and and you never have a sense of boredom. You don't have a sense. You're just pulled along. Yeah. And this is very similar. Yeah. And what's interesting is The Shining does it with wall to wall music. Yes, and this does it without. And you're just. And I think one of the big things, uh, it, you're absolutely right about the performances, and in particular, it's the filmmaking details. Yeah, it's that they're really going to show you in a very patient way, every single thing these guys do. Mm -hmm. And these are three really intelligent guys. And you get to watch, you know, whether it's the tent poles or the, or the, uh, that he, you know, he's in the water and then he blows the water out of the gun before he shoots the dog. It's little tiny details like that where you see the intelligence and the thought process. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I, you know, I think actors when they start, frequently young actors, they look at a script and they read the lines and they go, oh, acting, my job is to say these lines. Yeah. And that is not the job. That's a piece of the job. Certainly, you're going to say lines, but acting never stops. Mm-hmm. And and I know that like when Josh Brolin got the part, his first concern is, how am I going to act when I have almost nothing to say? <laughs> yeah. You know, and and of course he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. But it's it's acting is all the things that you do. It's all the behaviors. It's staying in the moment. Yeah. That's the, frequently the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you you know, it's like I have nothing. You know, there's certain, like Neil Simon is a playwright who is real. It's not that Neil Simon is easy, right. but here's great, funny dialogue. And pretty much, if anyone says it, it's going to work. Yeah. You know,
4: uh, being in this film, it's going to be hard. Yeah. You got to be really, really good. Yeah. And you, the audience will go with you. The audience goes with you because those are the moments where you really cement your connection with the audience is in the nonverbal cues in the nonverbal moments like those uh, those things with. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones's eyes in this whole film are what I watch oh, those, yeah. that craggly skin around his eyes, like all of it. Just it is such a, 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 a thing that I understand. And I know having grown up in Virginia. Yes, I didn't grow up in Texas. Obviously, the accents are different, but the South is the South. You have variations of the South, but the South is the South. And I think that's what's so great about this film. There's a simplicity. Some to the Texans dialogue. might disagree with you. What, so, yeah, well, I mean, i te- am sure it was it. Texas is Texas. Yeah, I respect <laughs> that. It is its own nation in a way. But like, the there are variations of the South and hues of the South in different states of the South. And you get you meet people like this, and I know people like this. It's feel very familiar to me. This film because of the uh, non flowery language, the simplicity of exchange. And the um, just just the there's no question about what has to be done, on either side of any of these people. No. They all are. They all have to complete what they have to complete. They all have to do what they need to do, and that's it. That's it. There's no like. Cause well, Tommy Lee Jones might have the most internal struggle. Well, only but because, you're correct. He's, only because yeah. he's confronting. Whether he, he is out of date, yeah, and everyone else, but he has to find out if he's out of date, which is why he pursues this. To and the he's end. a man
1: who has a sense of duty, and yes. so he's going to. So an, an honorable and, sense of. Duty. And let's talk about these three guys yeah. because one of the most. It's for the movie's a three-hander, which is a strange, mm-hmm. doesn't usually happen. No. but the most unusual thing is essentially these guys are never on screen together. Yeah, I mean, other than the gunfight. You know and the conversation on the phone and the conversation on the phone yeah they're ba- I mean they're basically never around together right you know you have three independent stories and let's start with Tommy Lee Jones I cannot imagine any other actor playing this part yeah. I, it would be impossible. He nails that Texas accent.
4: It's where he's from. Yeah, it's he where grew he's grew from. Up, right? He grew up in West Texas. Yeah, so, so, you, so he, But you, you don't usually hear it as overtly in his other films as you hear it in this one. And that's why it's so great. You get to settle into Tommy Lee being Tommy Lee. Yeah. And you go with him. And And I agree with you. There's no one else we uh, would have enjoyed doing this part and would have given so much of ourselves as an audience to go along with. You know, he's so he takes care of us the whole film and his subtle confrontation of the inner struggle within himself about his being out of date is so powerful in its subtlety. It isn't overt. He isn't like overtly talking about, hey, I think this is kind of behind me now or I'm not able to do this anymore. Why can't I figure this out? It's a slow realization as the film goes along till he has that final meeting with his uncle in the in yeah. that house, you know? Well, and he has
1: A, the intelligence, as all yeah. three of these guys have, yeah. and Next, he has the hard, craggy toughness mm-hmm. of that West Texas sheriff. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a guy to be messed around with. Right. But inside of it, through his eyes, as you say, you see that tenderness and the softness and the emotion yeah. that's always there. And, and I think it's, it is, it it is A, confronting, oh, maybe time has passed me and I'm not the person for this anymore. Yeah. But I think the deeper one for me is the world is going to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, look at what... And his deep sadness of oh, there's nothing I can do.
4: Mm-hmm. My time has passed, and this is going to continue. Um, That's why I was going back to that scene with him and that sheriff later on in the film when he says, uh, you know, he's got some hard bark on him, and he says, it's the d- dismal tad, and he talks about yeah. the earrings and the green hair. Right. That's what that whole... And Tommy Lee is there. Like, he's not judging. He just believes it's true, too. Like, that That once you stop saying... He says, once you stop saying, sir or ma'am, then it's just, that kind of stuff's not that far behind. And he's just telling the truth about how this is a transition because it's set in 1980 like right. we should tell people that the film is set in 1980 this is a transition time from the 70s with all the stuff people are the young kids are becoming more and more vocal about what they want what they are and they're stating their presence and the older generation that had this idea of how things should work is getting pushed to the side and that's what he's talking well, about well and things that
1: maybe started on the coast in the late 60s yes. and early 70s are yeah. making it now to west texas mm-hmm. you know and and i would say too like thematically I think this is a deeply conservative film. Yes. Agreed. Not necessarily... And conservative in the classic sense. Yeah. Conservatism in in the sense of... That uh, a liberal philosophy is open to change and a conservative philosophy wants to hold on to mm-hmm. things and not change. Mm-hmm. And I'm not putting a political judgment on this at mm. all. But, you know, the whole no country for old men. Yeah. The world is changing in a way that maybe isn't so good. Yeah. And, and that line of once you stop saying sir and ma'am, well, that is a conservative yeah. value. A philosophy. Yeah. And me as a liberal guy. I actually kind of agree with a lot of parts of this, Yeah, (laughs) you know, like I'm trying to beat pleases and thank yous into my kid, because I think obeying the societal norms and existing within a society is an important value.
4: And I think sometimes this is the fallacy that people put on liberalism. It isn't liberal. And I'm not, we're not getting into obviously Mr. Smith. If you want our, if you want a a political discussion, listen to our Mr. Smith goes to Washington podcast. But this is more about um, the idea of there has to be a foundation of societal norms then the liberality, you can be liberal about society and about accepting gay marriage, all these kinds of things, and equal rights and all of that. Absolutely. But I think a majority, if not all of us, want to have societal norms that establish politeness and courtesy and respect. Whatever comes from there, comes from there. But that basis, I think a lot of people, and a lot of liberals, want to have. I believe right.
1: that, and obviously conservatives too. Well, and it's 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 again how you frame the values. Yeah, you know, and and I think small differences in the way we frame values end up creating big conflicts. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, so Josh Brolin, we talked about him a little before. Yeah. He it's funny. I don't think this movie is the good, the bad, and the ugly, but there no. is but there is a different moral stance with our three characters mm-hmm. that I can't and and Tommy Lee Jones is clearly like. The good guy. Yes. You know, and Javier Bardem is clearly the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And Josh Brolin is somewhere in the middle. And he's very hard to define, Mm -hmm. um, is that he is a tough, extremely capable, silent, thoughtful, moral, but not overtly moral person, Mm -hmm. you know, who takes this opportunity. And we should say the movie starts, he's hunting, and he stumbles upon the scene of a gunfight out in the desert. Yeah. And it's a drug deal gone bad. Mm-hmm. And as he walks through, and again, this is exactly what's in the book. Yeah, He's kind of looking at the bodies and you see his intelligence right there Yeah, and realizes there's one man begging for water, which he doesn't, can't help. Yeah. Um, and he sees a, a trail of blood and realizes if there's a drug deal gone bad, there must have been money. And he finds the money guy yeah. dead with $2 million in briefcase. Yep. And that's,
4: man, we're off to the races. Mm-hmm. As he was just hunting, yep, and he gets caught into this thing. But once, but this is so great because it's juxtaposed to. Uh, the beginning of the movie, which is Tommy Lee Jones' dialogue and about that 14, that kid who killed the uh, that guy who killed the 14-year-old kid and said he just, he just knew he was going to kill somebody and the hunting of it, right? He hunted, that kid hunted that 14-year-old yeah. girl. Oh, just I like, thought about it that Yeah, way. just yeah. like, just like uh, uh, Josh Boland is hunting the deer. And this whole thing comes back to that scene he has with Kelly McDonald, who's fantastic She's later great. in the film, uh, where he says, even the, he, see, even in the battle between man and steer, it's not decide, it's not it's not an easy thing or it's not decided, you know, and yeah. that's the truth of even he, he's a terrible shot. Just Brolin is a terrible shot. Like he shot him, but he shot the deer, but didn't quite didn't kill it to, to well, where let's it went not say down. He's a terrible shot. Well, he missed the deer. I mean, he didn't kill the deer. I mean, it's a standing there. I, I think this is I think that's a symbolism for what's going to happen to the whole film. Close. Not enough.
1: Yeah, I would say that yeah. I
4: would say that. He's probably
1: a really good shot. Well, oh, I guess that's what I'm I mean? saying. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. he didn't quite succeed, right. which is sort of where the movie's going to go.
4: And they let you know right off yeah. the bat, right? And and they and they introduce right out right in the beginning, but from behind. Yep. From behind, and you have no idea why he's being arrested. You have no idea why he let himself be arrested, but he already has the cattle prod gun. You don't know why he let himself be arrested. I think he's this is his beginning of finding everything out.
1: Well, and let's let's so uh, Anton Shagur. yeah. One of the scariest bad guys I can think of. Top 10, period. Yeah. He is terrifying in his relentlessness, Mm -hmm. in his intelligence, in his coldness, in his craziness, in his weirdness. Yes. His slowness. Like all of these things. He is scary. And his first murder of this cop. Oh, man. It is so. And again, you know, we talked about how uh, Martin Scorsese deals with violence. We talked about how other directors deal with violence. The Cone brothers, particularly in this movie, the violence is real yeah. and it is brutal mm-hmm. and it is unromantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is really difficult to watch.
4: Yeah, and there were shades of this in Miller's. There were shades of yeah. this in Miller's. Sure. And you see this really come through here. Uh, and for me, I always, and will always remember the streaks of black on the floor from the deputy's yeah. shoes as he's struggling to try to live while Chigurh is right. choking him from behind. You have to ask yourself... Did the deputy pull his arms back around in front of him? Or did Shakur somehow... And that's the thing to me. He's a demon. To me, he's a demon through the whole film. He's the inevitability of death. He cannot be killed. His job is to kill. But there is a flaw in him. And the flaw is the fact that he thinks his morality or his judgment of himself is removed because he can flip a coin. Like Harvey Dent, for those who know the Batman mythology. That if he flips a coin and you get tails and he gets to kill you, then you it's it's it takes, it's out of his hands.
1: Well, he believes he believes in fate. He believes yeah. in this idea of he thinks everybody's petty moralities and yeah. motivations and desires is all bullshit right. because really it's fate and he is an instrument of fate. You know, right? Um, and and by the way, just on that choking the uh, sheriff or the yeah. deputy, uh, so how they did that because they wanted to look really real is that that deputy is wearing a whole. Almost like uh, body armor. Oh wow! Yeah, it's like a it's like a bulletproof vest that mm-hmm. goes up into his throat, and that's a fake throat. Oh, good. And the <laughs> handcuffs are embedded in the throat. Yes, they're actually so. When but just to start is that the handcuffs are connected to the guy, mm-hmm. and then Javier Bardem locked his wrist in the handcuffs. Right, and then and then the the blood pack is in the fake throat. Oof. So so he, so because what they wanted is normally if you do a choking scene, if you're doing yeah. combat, yeah. is that you're obviously not really choking because you can't, you know, actually kill people. Right. And that what usually happens (laughs) is that the person being choked controls the level of violence so that it looks as if, so in, in some ways, like you can do things where the person choking is trying not to choke and the person being choked is actually pulling the choke on. Yeah. So the muscles all look like they're working, but really they're not, they're, you know, the person's in control. Cone brothers didn't want that. Yeah. They wanted Javier Bardem to pull as hard as he could and do it for real. And so they built a whole metal structure around this throat wow. so he could really pull on it and not hurt the guy. Interesting. You know, and this is the thing of the Cone when you look at the Cone mm-hmm. brothers, they're constantly asking, how can we do this better? Right. How can we do this in a way? Because there's the way, this is the way that we do it. And they go, well, why do we have to do it that way? Right. Let's come up with a better way to do it. Yeah. You know, John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the cinephiles' new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game.
4: Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every
1: new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Um, so, uh, Brolin finds the money and what's great with his character is he immediately knows he's in deep shit. Yes. Is that he is. And you see that intelligence right at the beginning, you know, is he's thinking it through and he goes, okay, yeah, there's a good chance I'm going to die now. Mm -hmm. You know, if I take this money,
4: there's a good chance I'm going to die. Yeah.
1: And I'm not, and like, I'm not, like he doesn't go off and buy a Cadillac. He doesn't go off a party. He's like, I have to, everything I have to do is just to keep alive and keep my wife alive Mm -hmm.
4: and that's it. You know? But then he still makes the mistake of going back, because mm-hmm. he can't sleep. Yeah, the inevitability of it all. He has to go back to make sure, and in going back to making sure is when he screws himself over. Yeah. What do they always tell you? Criminals always return to the scene of the crime, and because yeah. he's a new criminal, I would imagine you know he hasn't done much more than maybe petty theft, if yeah, anything. Yeah, he's
1: probably you get you get the sense that he was a kid that.
4: You right. Know, right. Screwed around. Right. But he's living he's, he's like a poor guy yeah. with his wife living in a trailer. Right? Two millions dollars falls into his lap. What do you do? Yeah. Right. And we get to watch his intelligence. And yeah. we also see so he goes back and gets chased by this truck, which
1: for me in a way is like that's up there with North by Northwest mm-hmm. and the and the crop duster. That's great. It's such a great chase moment. Mm-hmm. Um and just barely survives. Yes.
4: And the dog thing is interesting too. With in the chase, absolutely. With uh, the fact that he shoots the dog like that, and the ferocity of that animal when they're shooting him from behind, uh, in the camera rather shooting the dog from behind as it comes at Josh Brolin scares the living hell out of me yeah. every time I watch it because there's inevitability to it, and he has he just at the right time, you know. Well, and this is
1: it violates a basic Hollywood rule, which is you can't kill the dog. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like this. I mean, like you could kill thirty people. Yeah, but the dog generally lives. Yep. Um, that's because, the whole
4: basis of John Wick. Yeah, yeah.
1: but but in uh, in this movie, yeah, he kills a dog yeah. because of course he kills a dog Yeah. because that's what you have to He do. has to live. But, well, and because he is a practical guy, mm-hmm. that is his. And we should say too that he's a Vietnam veteran. Yes, and that he you know, and this is 1980, and he's yeah. a guy who's come back from war, and is a guy who's not successful, mm-hmm. and this money falls into his. And we see all of that competence in combat and thoughtfulness throughout yeah. everything that he does. Right, um, and we get. Tommy Lee Jones now these bodies start popping up mm-hmm. and he's a great detective in the same way that I think um uh Francis McDormand is a great yeah. uh detective in Fargo yeah he, this is a great detective mm-hmm. you know he's laid back yeah he listens you see the intelligence mm-hmm. like you see for instance so uh Shigor uses this cattle stun gun yes it's an air tank oh, completely bizarre weapon is exactly what it is in the book yeah and you see that Tommy Lee Jones has figured it out before he says, I figured it out. Yeah. Because you
4: see the wheels turning. You see him understanding things. Yeah. I love the comic relief that Garrett Dillahunt is in the film. Yeah, he's great. He's so great because Garrett does a great job of playing these kinds of characters. Like Raising Hope is basically the same character he's playing here, right? Kind of right. a little step behind, not really all that smart. And I've seen him be villains in other movies. I've yeah. seen, like, in I think he was in Looper, I think. And he's, I think he was in Looper. And then in other films I've seen him be in. So he's a great companion with uh, Tommy Lee Jones. He's one of those people that actually is echoing of the quirky characters that you see in other Coen Brothers films. But for this film, as you said right at the beginning, Steve, it's a restrained version of this kind of character. Even he's restrained because he's asking these questions in a way of trying to get better, trying to get smarter uh, about about being a detective because Tommy Lee Jones is so good at it.
1: You know. Absolutely. I want to go back to flipping the coin yeah. because the first time we see it is with that store owner.
3: I've seen you was from Dallas.
2: What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo?
3: I didn't mean nothing by it. Didn't mean nothing. Just passing the time. If you don't want to accept that, I don't know what else I can do for you
4: yes oh my god one of the best scenes ever in the history of film steve go ahead yeah i'm sorry it is so i get so excited about that scenes i love it to pieces why do you love it to pieces uh, the, the dialogue and the actor who play i think is glenn jones or i think the guy actor's name is oh, well, well i need to see about closing and see about closing yes sir. what time do
3: you close now
2: we close now right? no it's not a time what time do you close
3: generally around dark at
2: dark You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Sir? I said, you don't know what you're talking about.
4: Just This speaks to what I want to say about the Coen brothers as a whole. Their ability to cast their films with even oh, yeah. the most minor characters with one or two lines is so brilliant. Like they need to be lauded for this. If there were awards for this they should be winning awards for this all over the place because I think it's so important because their films are pyramids. Their films are built. Every block is important to lead so the overall picture is amazing. And these little scenes with these characters, these actors who come in and convey an Authenticity is so essential to make their overall film work. And the dialogue between them in that scene is so powerful because there's so much hidden subtext going on to, to accompany the overt text going on. Well, and, and this is where I think the scene where
1: he chokes, that kills the cop yeah. is scary. Sure. This is where he becomes terrified.
4: This is, yes,
1: terrifying. Absolutely. Um, because because it's, his, it's the emptiness of his delivery. Mm-hmm.
3: You lived here all your life. This is my wife's father's place uh, originally. You married into it? We lived in Temple, Texas for many years. Raised a family there in Temple. we came come out here about four years ago.
2: You married into it?
3: That's the way you want to put it?
2: Well, I don't have some way to put it. That's the way it is?
1: I mean, I really don't think Javier Bardem Blink's... In this role if he does it's slowly yeah exactly yeah. it's not a quick blink i mean and he's just you know every line what he's you know he's a you know call it and the guys yeah. and you could see because we're in the normal world and in the normal world people don't just walk in and flip a coin and kill you so right. you see this stork this clerk um his slow realization that something really something's wrong yeah but he doesn't know what it is mm-hmm. and he's kind of asking and then this empty figure is just saying call it
3: call it call it yes for what just call it well we need to know what we're calling it for here you need to
2: call it i can't call it for you well, it wouldn't be fair
3: i didn't put nothing up
2: yes you're dead You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now
3: it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that?
2: You stand to win everything, call it.
3: All right. Well done.
4: Right, that is just
1: absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the next thing that I want to talk about too is, he goes to where uh, Moss uh, Josh Brolin lives, uh-huh. and he talks to the
4: older, heavyset woman once again. Great casting,
1: unbelievably great casting. Yes, and she is in her just her normal way, saying, "Sir, I can't give out that information.
4: Mm-hmm. Where does it work?
3: I can't say.
1: Where does it work?"
3: Are I ain't at liberty to give out no information about our residents.
1: And Bardin just repeats the question in the exact same monotone.
3: Yes.
2: Where does it work?
1: Did
3: you not hear me?
1: And because we just saw the coin flipping scene, it's terrifying. Yeah. She doesn't know it's terrifying. We know it's terrifying right. because we've established who this guy is. Right. And his completely relentless,
4: unsympathetic disconnected way. But in some way in that scene there's a difference between how that store owner is because the store owner is immediately immediately unsettled and discombobulated yes. and is so afraid because all he did was ask all he did was make an innocent comment about asking about the weather just to pass the time because god knows how long he's sitting out there between any kind of human contact with anybody but in just that scene he breaks him down and he he, he emasculates him by saying <laughs> by ca- by choking on the peanut yeah. and saying you married into this life of running a convenience store in the middle of right. nowhere is some kind of a, con- like this is what you want to do as a man. There's a judgment inherent in the subtext in that moment, right? But with this woman, there's a respect because the woman at no point conveys weakness no, or that all. she's going to help him at all. And he respects that strength yeah. and doesn't kill her because yeah. of that. I think that's the reason he doesn't kill her is this kind of thing. Oh, I get it. You, you have your code. I respect your code. I cannot shake your code like I could shake that guy's code Well know? he does believe in codes. Yes.
1: I mean his code is completely bizarre. It is. But but if he flips the coin the other way, well he's not gonna kill you. Right. So Moss is on the run and uh and we get to see again the intelligence. And I love things like he goes into the camping supply store yeah, yeah. and says uh I want some tent poles. Tent poles. Mm-hmm.
3: You already have the tent. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Well you give me the model number on the tent, I can order you the poles. Uh, never mind, I want a tent. Well what kind of tent? Guy with most polls.
1: <laughs> so first of all, that's a fantastic scene. Yes, um, but it's also a great scene because what do we as the audience do? We go, "What the fuck are you going to do with those poles?" Right. We're and this is the you know good filmmaking makes you the audience ask questions you want to know more Mm -hmm. on on the fundamental level you know i I always say like all 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 stories are mysteries Mm -hmm. and what i mean you know there's an acting book i don't know if you ever saw this it was all scenes are love stories yes yeah yeah and and i and you know i read that in theater classes Mm -hmm. i'm sure you did yeah and and i kind of a few years later went no no all stories are mysteries Mm -hmm. and sometimes the mystery is just the the movie starts you go who are these people right you know and then of course the mystery is well how is this going to end are they going to fall in love or not fall in love right but it's the, our desire to know maybe know what happens that keeps us involved Yeah, it takes us from scene to scene yep and in every scene in this movie you're constantly going why are they doing that what is that for why is he getting tent poles why is he getting a second room why is he getting a second room <laughs> and why is he looking at the map to do it this way and why is he putting so he puts the money in the yeah. uh air duct yeah in the motel and he's in the second room and then we he, he's bending the coat hangers to be the, and he sawed off his shotgun and you see mm-hmm. him doing all these things. And we talked about it in Goodfellas too, is we like details. Yeah, It's fun to watch how things work. Mm-hmm. We're watching him do all these things. And then we see, Oh, he's built this pole to mm-hmm. grab the briefcase through the air duct. And that is why he's in that room. And that is why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. And of course that alone would be interesting to watch, but there's something else going on at the same time which is beep, beep yes beep which is here comes the bad guy mm-hmm. getting closer and closer to the room it's like jaws it is yeah. yes that's mm-hmm. exactly what it's like mm-hmm. it's like the barrels and jaws yep. yeah it's coming and and we and again you know you get to make the decision as a director uh this is it comes from hitchcock yeah. is the audience can be in front of the characters, with the characters or behind the characters. And what that means is in Rope, uh, there's a scene where there's a body, there's a Hitchcock film, Mm -hmm. there's a body in a cabinet and there's a party going on. And the characters are just having the party with the body hidden there. And in the foreground, because Rope is shot in these really long shots, and in the foreground is this big, huge cabinet where we know the body is and the food for the meal is placed on top of it. Mm. And the maid is clearing the food while the conversation is going over there. So we're watching this and we're watching, Oh shit, is she going to open up this cabinet and see the body? And the (laughs) characters are talking and the tension is building and building and building until she almost starts to open up the cabinet. That's a case of the audience is ahead. Yeah. Of the characters, we know something they don't. We know right. the maid is doing this thing. Right. You know, it's like we know the bomb is underneath the house. The characters don't know the bomb right. is underneath the house. Sometimes you're behind the characters, as the characters know something that we don't. Right. And sometimes you're with the characters, where the cue and the characters know exactly the same thing. Right. So this is one where we're ahead of the characters. We know Anton Shagur is outside looking for the room, yeah. but Moss does not. Right. And that's where the tension is coming from. And it gets tenser and tenser and tenser until he opens up a room. And wipes out some other guys. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, this is the, that sequence starts to show you the expanse of what's happening, and also the scene when. Uh... Obviously, when when Brolin goes back and those, you know, and then Shakur shows up to that same scene of the drug and kills those two guys in the ties, like it's there's, we start to understand that the story is bigger than we right. thought, and the Mex- the Mexicans that he kills lets you know that a right, lot of right, people right. Are involved, and then we get to the Stephen Root scene with Woody Harrelson, so we start to see like there is so much involved here to to this one drug deal, right, and it's just this one moment where he took the two million dollars that caused this whole All chain these of events, to yeah. Um, and let's, let's since you brought him up, yeah. I love Stephen Root. Stephen Root's so great. He is so everything
1: from news radio, where and news radio I think is one of the great yes. underrated shows of all time. Absolutely, man. Um, the, he, f- the Phil Hartman years. The yeah, Phil of Hartman course. years. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, Stephen Root is so funny, and he's yeah. so every time he turns up, it's like, oh, there's Stephen Root
4: you know he's such a good supporting actor to me he's like mm at M. M. walsh he they had mm at yeah. walsh for a while the coen brothers did sure. and then this guy takes his place and steven root's so fantastic in in all the coen brothers films yeah whatever you do with him yeah. and we have woody harrelson who yeah. comes in as the other sort of
1: hitman tough guy mm-hmm. you know he might get a bad rap but i think he's always good Woody's
4: always good he's always good he's always committed and yeah. he's oh i was watching white men can't jump the again the i love day. white Man can't and jump. that's a good film it's a really good film, which explores a lot of adult themes that you wouldn't think a sports movie would do necessarily, yeah. and it's so good in that way. Yeah,
1: I, I think that you know, it's like uh, what's the director? It's Ron Shelton. So Ron he Shelton. does Bull Durham, White yeah. Man Can't Jump, and Tin Cup. Yeah, those are three really good movies. Yes, they are. Yeah, I don't know if we'll do them on the State <laughs> um right? But but I like them a lot. Feel the I, Dreams. We should probably do it. Sometime. Absolutely, but that's not Ron Shelton. That's
4: oh, the, I'm sorry. That's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil robinson right right yeah. right
1: yeah. uh anyway uh yeah. yeah woody harrelson is great yeah. um and then we get to our big gunfight in yeah. the hotel which is moss acquits himself very well you know mm-hmm. he's you know he realizes what's about you know like there's this sense of he realizes he there's the little transponder yeah in the briefcase that there's he realizes he's in trouble he turns the again turning the light off in the room yeah where he's sitting how he's waiting and that that you know cattle thing goes bla- blast the keyhole out, mm-hmm. hits him right in the chest, mm-hmm. and then there's a great brutal action sequence yeah. that follows that's really scary. Where he shoots sugar. I mean mm-hmm. he gets him, he gets the worst of it, yeah. And it follows this great
4: walk stumble across the border, mm-hmm. uh, which is so well done. It's but that's what's so great about the movie is that like what you were saying, it's a mystery, right? This is so great. At every turn, we're like, where are we going now? where are we going now now right. we're going into mexico and now he's confronting these kids and he's trying to get the jacket even wounded and
1: he is really wounded yeah, he is. and bleeding um he is still thinking he's tough and smart and when he gets to those guys he gets what i love is he gets the jacket he pays 500 mm-hmm. for it and then he asks for the beer yeah. And you're going. Why is he asking for the beer? Is he gonna? Does he want to kill the pain? Exactly. Like, what's he trying to do? And it ends up that the reason he has the beer is so he looks like a drunk. Yes, and that's going to get him across an the American drunk. Yeah, yes. and it's so like he's thinking. <laughs> and then even the moment where he's woken up by the mariachi band. Yeah, which, which is, is b- so great. Which is bizarre. I love
4: it so much. <laughs> um,
1: and then they re- see the blood and they stop. And it's yeah. this great low angle, wide angle shot. And it's really that. That's very Coen Brothers mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and still. He he's still got now and now the 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 plot of the movie really changes because once he talks to Shagor and Shagor goes i'm gonna go kill your wife. wife yeah and then the movie is and then he's like no i'm gonna kill you mm-hmm. and he has to get back across the border
4: and then he has that insane exchange with the border patrol guy which is so like that seems so logically what would happen tell me something
3: who do you think it's through this gate in the united states of america i don't know uh... American citizens? Some American citizens. Who do you think decides? You do, I reckon. That is correct. How do I decide? I don't know. I ask questions. And if I get sensible answers, then they get to go to America. And if I don't get sensible answers, they don't. Anything about that you don't understand? No, sir. Then I ask you again, how you come to be out here with no clothes? I got an overcoat on. Are you jacking with me? Oh, no, sir. Don't jack with me. Yes, sir. You in the service? No, sir. I'm a veteran. Na'am? Uh, yes, sir. Two tours. What outfit? 12th Infantry Battalion, uh, August 7th, 1966, July 2nd, 1968.
4: Wilson? Yes, sir? Get
3: someone to help this man. He needs to get into town.
4: And it's so brilliant, huh? It's that that pseudo-comic relief that happens in this movie, having that exchange with the Border Patrol. It's very Shakespearean in that way. Absolutely. Well, and it, again, goes to what you were saying of the Coen brothers
1: populating their movies with every supporting character you're going to meet, or tiny bit part, they're going to be a character and be interesting. Absolutely. Um, And he gets to this motel in El Paso, and Mm -hmm. and the wife is coming to El Paso. Yeah. And then you have possibly one of the weirdest things
4: in any movie I can think of, which is right out of the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is he dies? Yes, off camera. Can we stop for just a second to go back to something? What you just said. Yeah. This whole exchange that happens with him in the hotel and the wife—that we as an audience member, we are inst- we instinctively kick into that whole like, yes, he's going to do it. He's exactly. the hero. Yes. We, we we buy into this idea that he's going to find a way. Why? Because he's damaged. He he damages Jigor, so we think. It's possible, and then Shagor has that scene where he blows up the car to get the boots to get the medicine, and we're dealing with two incredibly resilient men. Right. One is just a little better at it because he's been doing it longer, well, and so and this is why he ends up winning. And but it, but then he doesn't end up killing Tommy Lee Jones himself. Tommy Lee Jones is killed by an act of stupidity by Kelly McDonald's mom. Well, not Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, you, I'm uh, sorry. No, I'm, yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. Uh, Josh Brolin. Yes, yeah, yes. Please don't kill Tommy Lee. Yeah. Right. Too. Well, um,
1: I'm so glad we can you, discuss the ending later. But I, yes. I'm so glad you brought this up because. Yeah. It's something I wanted to talk about too. Is that basic action film structure or thriller structure? Is that you always want to set up your bad guys more powerful than your good guy mm-hmm. because you good guys have something over to overcome, exactly. and that's exactly what we've done up to this point. Mm-hmm. If we said this bad guy is way scarier, yeah. but Moss is intelligent and resilient, and and we really believe, as you say, now we're heading into the final sequ- yeah. sequence. He's going to confront the bad guy. Our hero's going to win, and then that's not even close to what happens (laughs) Not even close and not only does our hero die 20 minutes before the end of the movie yeah but he dies off camera off camera and we don't even really know what and and i remember seeing it in the theater going is that just that can't be josh brolin this is a mistake right (laughs) like it's not what i don't understand what's happening i literally couldn't right keep up yeah and it's the same so i'm listening to the book this is a week ago And I got to the same point because the same – they're just identifying the body now. Yeah. And I go – and I had to rewind it. And I went, did I miss something? And no,
4: it all happens off camera. Yeah. And it's great. And what's so great, once again, Steve, to hit it for the third time, that scene where he's walking the hotel and that woman is propositioning him, she is fantastic. And oh, we never great. get a close-up shot of her. No, but she is sexy. She's fan- she's country sexy, and she's fantastic in that sequence. And then when we see when we see Tommy Lee Jones rolls up to see what happened, because what we see is Tommy Lee Jones, Tom Lee, who's been convinced, Kelly McDonald, he's convinced Kelly McDonald to to tell him where he is, so that Tommy Lee Jones can offer him protection. Right. And he rolls, and, and unbeknownst to him, Tommy Lee Jones is, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Josh Boland's wife, Kelly McDonald's mother, has. Uh, uh, shot her mouth off to these right. Mexicans who are supposedly being nice to help her with her uh, uh, bags and they find out where Tom Lee Jones is. So we see that truck, that pickup truck rolling out of yep. there and the guns blazing and it's taking off. And that's how they got killed. He got killed by the cartel he doesn't have I think they take that money back obviously I think but we have no idea but we have no idea right and then what the first sequence we see when Tommy Lee Jones rolls up in the, is seeing the woman in the pool dead in the water yep. and that was that's so brilliant because it lets you understand first you you feel the sense of comfort that this woman is because that's a classic thing in action movies too is you get that, you get that little come on in that moment right. it, it establishes your hero that he's going to be a badass and <laughs> they kill her and so you know he's dead like yeah. you just know it it's and funny it's one so of the few great. things Things that's different in the
1: book is the relationship with her is much longer oh really yeah and oh, they, they don't they don't have a romantic relationship
4: right. but they have lunch and then they're having beers and they're talking kind of like gone girl when she goes and has that relationship with those two people when she's hiding sure. out in that hotel yeah okay um yeah so so it goes
1: on just a little bit longer yeah. but it, but i think they cut it for good reason yeah and now and, and and i want to talk about too is that we have josh brolin healing yes and then uh we also have uh sugar his so again, it's a moment where you go, why is he putting gas on this yes. piece of fabric? And, oh, he's going to blow up that car. Why is he blowing up this car? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's blowing up this car to get medical supplies. Yeah. And then you have one of the great operating on yourself sequences that culminates. So he's t- taking bullets out of his leg. Yeah. And it culminates with this fantastic naked shot of him on the toilet operating on himself mm-hmm. that is just that is an amazing shot. <laughs> it's funny and disturbing yeah. and scary, like all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an amazing shot. And now we're you're kind of left in this place of like, I don't know what's the movie about. Right. You know? Right. And where do you, how
4: do you, where do you feel it goes from here? Like, mm-hmm. what do you think it becomes about? Well, to me, it's very reminiscent of to live and die in LA when spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, you can turn it down for like 30 seconds when William Peterson is killed before 20 minutes before the end of the right. movie and John Pankow has to take over, uh, and to me, what the movie becomes about after Tommy Lee Jones—I mean, I'm sorry, Josh Bolden is killed—is Tommy Lee Jones's journey. And the book, since you have read, is told from his point of view the whole time. Uh, if from what I understand, it's, it's told not. From Tommy it, no, Lee no, it's not. It bounces. Of view. I mean, he
1: he leads every chapter. Right. So right. we start with him, but then yes. we he the the book. Tells
4: all sorts of things it's impossible for him to know about. Okay. Because he wasn't there. Because okay.
1: you, go, you, you, go, you, you bounce around the other
4: characters. Yeah. Too. But I feel like this. But he's the heart of the book. Right. And I think that's what we come back to. Because Timely Jones has been. This bit is the, our classic hero. He is moral. He does yeah. not do anything that's amoral, like, like uh, Josh Boland does by stealing the money. Timely Jones is supposed to be our protagonist. And that comes clear to us after. Right, because
1: our, our, what I thought was our hero it was Josh Brolin. Right. He's now gone. So I go, oh, Tom Lee Jones is going to be a hero. Right. And then we lead up to this moment where uh, Bardem and Tom Lee Jones are coming together. Yes, in the hotel room. In the hotel room. And, at night. At night. And it is terrifying. It is. Because there's no sense that you have that Tom Lee Jones can take, you know, right. like, sugar out. No. Sugar. There's no sense that you have of that. Right. right? Like, And so when he comes to that, Motel well, he he's not thinking the bad guy's here. Right. And he's wandered around, you're like, oh, fuck, is he going to die? Like, what's going to happen here? I think he has a suspicion when he sees the keyhole blown. Oh, absolutely, at yeah. that moment. Yes. Yeah. But, but until then, yeah. But he still isn't, you know, he, he puts his gu- pulls yeah, his gun yeah, out, yeah. and then he kind of sits down. And then it, it, because we already had our last hero die. Yeah, yeah. So there's no reason why Tommy Lee Jones can't die. And then mm-hmm. he ends up not dying. Right. Um, I it, think he knows he's there.
4: I don't, I don't know. I think he knows he's there. I think when he sits there is when his realization that he's out of his depth for the first time ever. And he can't do this. And I, in that moment, he, there's, a, there's an acceptance of that. And he doesn't court fate. Yeah. If he had investigated that room further, he'd have found Bardem and Bardem would have killed him. Why is Bardem there in the room, though, if the money's not there? I don't know. And Tommy Lee Jones is dead. I mean, uh, God damn it, Josh Bolin is dead. Why is Chigurh there? I don't, I don't know. I don't know well and the
1: police have been here yes so where was he yes we don't know but but again he's like the wind you know mm-hmm. like he can just walk in and out of these places yeah yeah he's a, and then and then we have this conversation with his uncle who was in the wheelchair god i
3: love that conversation man what you got ain't nothing new this country's hard on people you can't stop what's coming
4: ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. But that's that's the first time we start to see Timely Jones uh, come to come to terms with the fact that he's out of his depth. Uh, I mean, the second time because obviously sitting on the bed is my belief that he starts to really kind of conceive of it. But then he starts talking about it with him, and to me, that's uh, one of the greatest scenes in this film, man. So, just, what do you like about it? Uh, just the because there is no uh, bullshit. There right. is no bullshit in that scene between them. It's just true. He, he, he makes fun of him. Could you tell that immediately they establish a familiar relationship? Because he says, how'd you know it was me? Uh, I heard right. your truck pulling up. Yeah. You know, I heard the, way, and the who you came in. Here. And who else is going to come in? But he's got all these cats. Right. You know, which is so ironic to have a cat, cat man instead of a cat lady. And he's in the wheelchair. And he tells the story to him about his father. And it's just, it's all symbolic. It's all symbolic. And, and Tommy Lee Jones is, is telling him, you know, like, I, well, what is it symbolic of? Oh, to me, it's symbolic of this is this. It's done. It's done. You're done. This is done. You can't do this anymore. You're, you're done. And the the way he's telling him, there is no what I don't know what you want to say. There's no like, well, maybe if you work harder. No, it's OK. Yeah. There's no encouragement. It's an acceptance a man to man saying, yeah, you can't do it anymore. It's time you, you, you wrapped it up and it's done. What do you think? Well, to me, because I think it's a great. Because I know too. why you're asking me. If you want to talk about? It, so talk about
1: it. No, no, actually, I, I'm not sure. I'm not. It's okay, not, really, it's, you're still not sure now. Well, I, I mean, because wow. I think this movie doesn't yes. leave you with like here it is yes but what i which i love my gut is because it's it's really strange because because the dramatic elements of the movie are basically over yeah and we now have all these scenes mm-hmm. those scenes take on a lot of significance mm-hmm. because it's just like well this is what it's tr- you know cormac mccarthy is really and the Coen brothers are trying to tell me yeah and the thing i think about it is that to some degree the 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 moral conception you had of the universe as a kid is a lie. Yep. You know, that's what it really is. You end up an old guy in a wheelchair with cats that nobody really cares about mm-hmm. waiting to die. Yep. And that, you know, both of them say, st- and that's what, you know, there's a story about your ancestor that had this thing. Right. And, and when that happened and what did that mean? Well, maybe it didn't really mean much of anything. And now you've lived your whole life fighting the good fight, you know, trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And maybe
4: that, didn't do any good but this is what happens to us as we get older and I started to have these thoughts in my head too like what's your legacy what have I really done what have I accomplished and in his way he's like what have I really done yeah, yeah I stopped the crimes that I stopped but I never stopped crime as a whole but yes I say crime. is gonna keep going the yeah, crimes is gonna keep going I'm just another uh, a bookmark or a chapter in the long history of law and order the long history of crime in this city, in this place, because, uh, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he talks about he was a sheriff since he's 25 years old. So he is starting to conceive of the fact of what what was the point of my life? And that's what all, a lot of men do at that stage in their lives when they hit that age is like, did I really do everything I was supposed to do? What's my legacy? What was the point of my life? What was the meaning of it all? So, you know, I was just thinking, you know, a little while ago
1: yeah. we recorded uh, an episode on It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. One of your favorite movies and my favorite movies. Yes. It's just occurring to me as we're talking that this is like the opposite message, like the message. You mean of, no country is the opposite message? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That 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 the message of "It's a Wonderful Life" that we talked right. about is your life matters. Right. Look how much each man makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about with Tommy Lee Jones, yeah, is. He's contemplating the fact that his life hasn't mattered at all. Right. That he hasn't made a difference. That maybe this is all for nothing.
4: Well, I think he needs a visit from a Clarence-type version of to God. sit him down in a bar and be Didn't like, "Don't you wish he could get that?" And go through all his case files and be like, "Look at all these families that you saved. Look at all these people that you that you were able to affect their lives in a positive way." So you may not see it, but like George Bailey at the end of it, it's a wonderful life. He needed those people to show up with that money and to show him the love, so that he could see his effect on God, the town. Finally, I once I in wish we could send. Clarence to Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> I don't think so because that's a different movie. It's not this
1: movie. <laughs> no. no. Well,
4: and the now world is
1: in the up? world. In Tommy Lee Jones' mind, right. is just slowly heading down the toilet.
4: Which, once again, just at the beginning of the film, he talks about the fact that this guy is like, I was, in, I was going to kill somebody. I'd been a fan of Sonic since mm. I was a kid, and I'll be in hell in 15 minutes. Once again. It's the symbol the, They lay the symbolism of these people's journeys at the beginning of the movie for all of them.
1: Well, and there are really three moments that relate to. So, mm-hmm. so, so there's that moment. Yeah, and then there's a great line from uh, Josh Berlin, which is. Uh, you know, if I don't come back, tell my mom. Yeah, and she says, "Your mom's dead." And he says, "Well, I guess I'll tell her myself." Yeah, right. Which is really similar. It's like I'll be in hell in fifteen minutes. Yeah. This is I'm going to die. And then the
4: final monologue from yeah. Tommy Lee Jones, which is so powerful, in which he talks about his father, even in the, in the even in the interaction with his wife, who's great, by the way, in the in the couple of scenes that she's in, she's, oh, she's fantastic. Uh, he says to her, Tommy Lee Jones says to her, like. He tells the dream, right? And the first dream about the, the money being lost, yeah. that's something, too. If people blow off that dream. People say, oh, no, no, it's the second dream that's really important because it's all about his death. Yeah, but that first dream about him fumbling away money his right. dad gave him, there's something to that. Well, because his dad handed him the baton. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Not he- enough people talk about that dream. They always talk about the second dream. And yeah. Both of them are related and important to show you who this guy really is underneath.
3: It was like we was both back in the older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. He rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, just rode on past. He had his blanket wrapped around him his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in a dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there, and all that dark, and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there.
1: I think essentially
4: the meaning of that monologue is now I'm going to die. Yes. Absolutely it you know? is. His father went ahead to do the campfire, to light the fire, right. to wait for him. Because yeah. he knows he's going to come meet his dad when he dies, and he's going to die soon. Well, and I think in a lot of ways, this movie
1: is a criticism or a reconstruction of the classic Hollywood hero. Yeah. The, the basic... Thing That 99.9% of films and stories and comic books and video games are telling you mm-hmm. is you can save the world. Right. And in the end, no matter how, it's always darkest before the dawn. and No matter how bad it's going to get, the hero's going to come through. And we're all raised with that. Yeah. You know, particularly, as you say, you know, as men, maybe that really gets beaten into you. Be the hero. Yeah. Be the hero. And this movie says... You know this guy you thought was a hero? Well he's dead twenty minutes before the movie ends and we never even see it. Right. And he doesn't even he never even confronts the big bad guy. Like right. he just gets killed by some random people we never saw. Right. Our other guy who's really heroic, he's just given up at yeah. this point. Yeah. And he's thinking about what the what was the point of all this for? Right. And you know what? That shit is bullshit. <laughs> you know? I mean that's
4: how it feels yeah. at the end of the movie. Yes. You know? And it's that's like, what I love about it. There's yeah. a, there's a it matches it matches the environment that they shoot this in, the bleakness. There is no happy, good feel end. There's no good feeling ending in this movie, and this is what I love. These movies are so rare nowadays. They were all over the '70s. Yeah, these movies are so rare nowadays, and there's a reason people love this movie as much as they did, Uh, and it won Best Picture because it harkens back to what filmmaking can really be, and the exploration of these themes of the inevitability of age, the inevitability of being unable to cope with what you could do before because your body and your mind just can't do it anymore. Yeah. And there is no, once again, what I said earlier, there is no bullshit. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: and I think you you know—you say this is the kind of movie that doesn't get made. And I think the reason that this one gets made is because it's the Coen Brothers. Yes. Because they absolutely. have somehow carved out a niche mm-hmm. for themselves where they get to make movies that basically the studio system doesn't make yeah because each one of their movies makes enough money for them to make the next one yeah. they're not making 150 200 300 million dollar movies mm-hmm. they're hitting this level they make a profit and they go make and and so hollywood has said yeah make whatever you want yeah and that allows them to do this and we as an audience say that too yeah oh, we will come to it yeah absolutely and we're gonna you know, whatever i don't know what the next coen brothers movie is but i'm gonna go see it yeah even if it's not that great yep <laughs> i'm gonna go see it because I, I like, like hail caesar which you know, i really didn't like um, so, one person we have not given enough oh, yeah. credit to is Roger Deakins.
4: Yes. Oh, my
1: gosh. So, this is the cinematographer. Okay. Uh, his first movie with the Cone Brothers was Barton Fink. I think he's done every Cone Brothers movie since then. Wow. I think. Okay. I'm not 100% sure. He's done most of them. Okay. He is one of our great cinematographers. He also did Skyfall. and oh, uh, you know. And what he says about the film is that they planned out every single shot. You know, we talked about Apocalypse Now and uh, The Excess of the way mm-hmm. Coppola did that film. Uh, we had talked about in The Shining, the unbelievable attention to detail, which leads to a different kind of excess for mm-hmm. Kubrick. And this is the opposite. They He says that basically every shot they set up, they used. They had an extremely low film ratio. So Apocalypse Now, they shot like 1,600 yeah. hours of film for a two and a half hour movie. This they shot, I forget what it is, but it's, Everything they shot, they used. Yeah. Because they knew exactly what they were going to do. They were extremely efficient. There's no zoom lenses. There's no tricks. There's no... It's just very like every shot composed... Just right. Right. And he is, and by the way, one of the other things he did that I love, he's the cinematography advisor for Wally. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you look at the first act of Wally, the Pixar movie, yeah, yeah. it is so gorgeous. And you can see Roger Deakins like talking about color and lighting and lensing and things like that. Cause yeah. he's just one of the great cinematographers mm-hmm. of all time.
4: I think that's why the movie works without music.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. If you, you know, you're going to pull the out limit. one element, the other elements have to step up, Exactly. you know? Uh, so your final thoughts.
4: Oh my, um, all I can tell you is look at one best picture for a reason if you haven't seen it revisit it again I'm telling you you will get something new out of it every time I say this about Citizen Kane and I think No Country for Old Men definitely belongs in that company it's one of those films that you can watch over and over and over again no matter where you're at in your life no matter what age you're at or what you're going through or what you've experienced or what you're about to tackle and you will get something different out of it from any of the number of scenes or or characters that are in that movie and the journeys that they go on you will find echoes of the journeys that you were on in your own personal life and in your relationships with your family, with your parents, with your friends, what have you in your journey of figuring out where you belong in this world. And if you really made a difference and what your, what your lasting impact was
1: about your life. Yeah, but I totally agree. And, and like those great films and I definitely put this as a great film. Yeah. There's nothing like it. hmm you know, Agreed. you don't look at it and go, "Oh, this is like this is like this one." Yeah, I don't know. It's any. I don't even think it's like a Coen Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. It has you could see you could see the craftsmanship of the Coen Brothers in it. Right. But it is its own thing. In fact, I, you can't really even place it in a genre. No, is it's it, like it, is is it neo- a western, western thriller. Yeah, yeah.
4: There's all there's kinds. There's some
1: really scary parts. Yeah. It has action sequences that are fantastic, but they're not action right. sequences like an action movie. Yeah. It is its own thing, and like a great movie. You don't get to walk away from it and understand it. You have
4: to walk away from <laughs> it and think about it. You take what yeah. you want to take out of it, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Well, that's what we think of No Country for Old Men. We'd love to hear what you think. You can always visit us on Facebook. That's at the Cinephiles, that's C I N E F I L E S. You can write all the horrible things you think I said to me <laughs> on Twitter what? at SR Morris. Uh, John, if they have any horrible things <laughs> to you, they want to say to you, would you like them to contact no, you? No,
4: I don't want them to contact me and say horrible things. But if you feel they need to do so, you can always contact me uh, at the Roca says on Twitter and Instagram. That's R O C H A. You could also say nice things about it, as we've discovered. Mostly, people say nice things about enjoying the, the show and enjoying our breakdown of the film. I like nice things. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's Speaking of nice things, I would like you
1: to write those nice things on a review on iTunes boom. because we definitely need – they really help us a lot. They help uh, bring the show up in the rankings and allow pe- more people to see it, and yeah. we really want that. Uh, so uh, review us on iTunes. Contact us on Twitter. Write us messages on our Facebook page. Android and Stitcher, what are we on? Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, so this is one problem. So Stitcher, they have a little problem with the Dash in cinephiles. <laughs> Don't know why, but if you're searching for it, search it for it without the dash. Yes. Search for files two words, and you'll find us. Yes. But Files, they can't find us. Stitcher says they're going to fix it. I'm assuming our podcast is the number one priority for that <laughs> corporation. Um, so hopefully that'll be solved in the, in the near future. Okay, that's it for this week. We will see you next time on an all-new Cinefiles.